Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, in the past decade, autism has gotten more attention by the media and the wider culture. And you probably know someone with autism or has a child with autism. And some of you listening probably have a child with autism. Yet despite the spotlight autism has gotten in recent years, several myths and misconceptions about it pervade the popular culture. But understanding the history of how our conception of autism that we have today developed can go a long way in shedding light on these myths. Well, my guest today has written what is probably the most extensive history of autism research out there. His name is Steve Silverman, and his book is Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. Today on the show, Steve and I discuss the forgotten history of autism research and some of the popular myths that we have about autism out there, such as it being caused by cold refrigerator moms, certain foods, vaccines, etc. Theories as to why autism even exists, how parents should approach raising a child on the spectrum and advice on how to connect with your autistic friends and colleagues. Really fascinating show that highlights a lot of things that I didn't know about. After the show's over, make sure you check out the show notes at aom.is slash neurotribes where you can find links to research where you can delve deeper into this topic. Steve Silberman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Uh, so your book is called Neurotribes. It's a history of of autism research, and you talk. We talk later about uh, with this idea of neurodiversity and, and what you mean by neurotribes. But I'm curious, why did you feel like this book had to be written? A, a history of the development of the autism spectrum as we know it today. I mean, why is it important for people to understand that if we, they really want to understand how we really want to understand autism? Well, here's the thing. There were so many sort of bad things happening in the world because people did not know the history, and that had been bothering me for years. I'm sure we'll talk about how I first wrote about uh, autism back in 2001 for Wired. But after that article came out, I saw that uh, families were struggling with... uh, lack of support and resources for their kids. Autistic people were struggling with lack of employment. And yet almost the uh, entire social conversation around autism was whether or not vaccines cause autism. And, And what that comes from is the fact that no one had ever explained the undeniably steep rise in diagnoses that began in the uh, early 1990s. And so, you know, if you read a 
New York Times story about autism, and you know, the New York Times is, you know, the paper of record and very serious. They would always say that the reason for that uh, spike in diagnoses was a mystery, an enigma, a puzzle. And, you know, so that went on for years and years. And meanwhile, I'm tracking all these news items about autism. I thought, really? Why is it still a puzzle? Why don't we know this? And so, uh, you know, that was really what convinced me that I needed to uh, start digging back into autism history and sort of see where things went awry in a way. And so what kick-started your interest in autism research? Uh, you, talk, you mentioned that Wired article you wrote back in 2001. Why did, why did you start delve, going down this, um, this path of researching autism? Well, I've been writing for, uh, about science uh, for Wired for a while by then, and um, I actually came into the autism world in a very unusual way. The, pretty much the first question that almost everybody asks me when they hear that I wrote this book is, you know, do you have an autistic kid? And the answer is no. And, you know, uh, if they're really hip, they say, like, are you on the spectrum yourself? And actually, I'm not. I'm neurotypical. But uh, what happened was, back in 2000, I was on a boat in Alaska with more than 100 computer programmers. And um, the occasion for that uh, unusual gathering was something called a geek cruise. So it was some guy's idea to... to uh, have like tech conferences in, in more interesting places than Holiday Inns in Pittsburgh. And so we were on this big cruise ship going up the Alaskan panhandle. And um, I noticed that the, you know, my fellow shipmates on the cruise, who were mostly really high-level programmers, were very industrious, you could say. Like, as we were pulling out of Vancouver, they started uh, unpacking routers and stuff from their luggage to upgrade the ship's communication systems. And they eventually asked the captain to give them a tour of the engine room. And so there were people who liked to understand how things work and make them work better. And uh, sort of the star of the cruise was this guy, Larry Wall, who invented a programming language called Perl, that is so useful that Perl uh, programmers call it the duct tape of the Internet. And stuff like Amazon and, and Craigslist and even Microsoft uh, software would not have been possible to build without Perl. So as we were coming back into port, I asked Larry if I could interview him at home. Uh, and he said, yeah, sure, I should tell you, we have an autistic daughter. And at that point, like almost everyone, including most clinicians, uh, I thought that autism was a very, very rare condition. And in fact, uh, teachers back then, if they, you know, got an autistic kid in their special ed class, would be told, uh, you know, really observe this kid closely because you'll never see another one. You know, it's so rare. And uh, so, you know, when he said that, it registered, but, you know, I didn't make much of it until a couple months later, I was writing another story for Wired about another technologically very adept family in Silicon Valley. The patriarch of the family had built the first computer in the Middle East way back in the 1940s. And I asked the sister-in-law of the woman I was profiling if I could interview her at home. And she said, yeah, sure. By the way, we have an autistic daughter. And I thought, God, what a funny coincidence. I thought autism was rare. And so I was telling that exact story to a friend of mine in my neighborhood cafe here in San Francisco, and a woman at the next table suddenly interrupted and said, oh my God, do you realize what's going on? And I said, what's going on? And she said, 
I'm a special education teacher in Silicon Valley. There's a, there's an epidemic of autism in Silicon Valley. Something terrible is happening to our children. So, you know, I like got the chills. It was like a really heavy moment. Uh, but because I was a science writer, I thought, well, you know, I not only, you know, will get the chills, but I can actually look into this and see if it's true. So I ended up writing an article uh, for Wired called The Geek Syndrome, and it was about uh, genetics, actually, and how geneticists had noted that um, people who have autistic kids often have autistic traits themselves and are often uh, rather gifted in certain fields of science and technology. So, um, you know, I pursued that in 2001 with The Geek Syndrome, but it was really the emails that I got for almost, well, 10 years after that article came out, which is very, very unusual for a magazine article, where I became aware of the really serious problems that autistic people and their families were facing in day-to-day life, while meanwhile the whole world was talking about Jenny McCarthy and vaccines and Dr. Andrew Wakefield and do vaccines cause autism? And, you know, I'd written about big pharma, so I knew that the pharma industry is not necessarily our friend. And, you know, they're perfectly capable of doing a huge cover-up of terrible things. But as I dug into uh, autism history, I came to believe that that was not at all the case. Okay. So I think this idea that your geek syndrome, that kind of goes back to the neurodiversity thing. We'll get back to that later on. But let's start start with this question. Um, What how do we define uh, the autism spectrum today? Um, and then we can take from there, and then we can work forward to look back to see how we got to this point. Sure. Well, uh, remember that the autism spectrum is incredibly broad. It encompasses people who uh, may never learn to speak, uh, may require almost continuous 24-7 assistance, to get through their daily lives. So that's one uh, part of autism. Another part of autism is, say, the CTO of a well-known Silicon Valley company, who I've actually met, who is, you know, quite autistic and yet very successful uh, in his job, his corporate job. So it, it is an incredibly broad range of people. In fact, an autistic person once said to me that autistic people are more unlike each other than neurotypical or non-autistic people are. And in a way, that's really true. There's a wider range of behavior. But there is a certain sort of core constellation of uh, challenges that people on the autism spectrum face no matter if they're, you know, CTOs or or people, uh, you know, who can't live without daily assistance. And that is um, they struggle with reciprocal social interactions. They have a hard time reading the body language of uh, particularly people who are not autistic. Uh, and they also tend to have very, very consuming interests. Uh, you know, in psychological terms, it's, it's often called obsessions, but, you know, they're sort of very deep and narrow interests. So if, like, somebody's really into trains, they'll find out everything about the local train service. In fact, I have an autistic friend who was uh, absolutely thrilled to go to the opening of the new Second Avenue subway in New York uh, the other day. He, you know, took uh, Facebook Live videos, you know, so... People with autism tend to get very, very deeply interested in the things they're interested in, whether it's Disney movies or physics. 
and they also struggle to do reciprocal social social interactions, like they have a hard time making sense of the little signals that non-autistic people constantly send each other with body language and facial expressions and tone of voice. Uh, and many autistic people, I mean, this is not necessarily part of the official diagnosis, but many autistic people also struggle with chronic anxiety um, and uh, several other things as well. But really the core constellation is uh, trouble with reciprocal social interactions and very deep and consuming interests. Okay. So let's talk about autism before autism was autism. Um, Because it really wasn't until the 1930s that... um, there was a name put to it or that people started, psychologists started recognizing it. So before that time, I mean, how were individuals who showed these traits, these constellations of traits you just mentioned, how were they labeled or treated? Well, you know, they were labeled uh, lots of many different things because nobody knew exactly what it was and nobody had sort of described uh, uh, autism as a distinct condition. Um, There was a psychologist in Moscow uh, in the very early 20th century, who wrote about a bunch of teenagers who we would now say have Asperger's syndrome. They uh, were uh, quite intelligent, uh, but they, uh, they had trouble in social interactions. Um, they were often doing badly in school because they needed kinds of support that hadn't been invented yet. Um, and this woman speculated that they might have some kind of schizophrenia um, but she noticed that unlike uh, people with schizophrenia, if you gave them certain forms of support, they would do really, really well, whereas sometimes, um, particularly before the invention of medication, uh, people with schizophrenia you know, would not do so well. Um, so there was speculation in the early uh, 20th century that you know, maybe there was this kind of schizophrenia. And you know, one of the labels that were slapped on particularly autistic people of color, uh, quite often, and probably it still is applied to them, is uh, you know what used to be called mental retardation and is now called intellectual disability. Um, there was sort of a class dynamic going on between who got an autism diagnosis and who got a diagnosis of intellectual disability, which was considered a sort of poor people diagnosis. But there were many, many different labels that autistic people were hidden behind before uh, not only the formulation of the autism diagnosis, but the popularization of the diagnosis, which didn't really happen until the 80s and 90s, as we'll talk about later. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting, too. You know, people talk about there's been this uptick of autism, but, you know, I know people don't like, don't like doing the historical um, psychological analysis on people, but you mentioned a few examples from history where people look at the 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 diaries and sort of the interactions people had or the record of these individuals, and they can be like, yeah, that person probably had Asperger's, maybe. Right. I, I try to be a little bit careful about that because um, pop culture has gone a little bit wild with that, you know? So it's like, you know, Jerry Seinfeld goes to see Curious Incidents of the Dog in the Nighttime on Broadway, and he comes out saying like, hmm, I think I'm on the spectrum. Well, <laughs> right. you know, if the, the problem with that is, I mean, he may have autistic traits. Uh, Autistic traits turn out to be extremely common, you know. But the thing is, I mean, let's face it, Jerry Seinfeld is a multimillionaire, and he's been incredibly successful. And, you know, Jerry Seinfeld and Mark Zuckerberg, for that matter, should not, uh, you know, define what autism is. 
because most people who are on the spectrum have significant uh, more serious challenges in their daily lives than that. But the whole key to why, where you draw the line on the spectrum between autism and non-autism is so tricky is because the spectrum shades imperceptibly into eccentric normality. As the woman who came up with the uh, word, uh, you know, the phrase autism spectrum, Lorna Wing, uh, told me. So in other words, there's no bright line between autism and non-autism. There are people who should not get a diagnosis of autism who have autistic traits. And really the bottom line is, is the person struggling in their daily life? And if they are, um, which can take, you know, subtle forms, uh, they should probably get a diagnosis. But, you know, I'm not into, like, slapping the, you know, I mean, I've met Bill Gates. Um, he did have a lot of autistic traits when he was younger. He's obviously doing very well. People say that Steve Jobs had autism. I met Steve Jobs. I would say he did not have autism. Uh, he was, a, you know, an unusual and, and sometimes disagreeable man, I would say. Uh, also absolutely brilliant. I'm looking at an Apple Macintosh right now. But, you know, I don't think he had autism. So I think it's possible for people to go a little bit too far in saying that, oh, everybody's kind of on the spectrum. Well, if everybody's on the spectrum, then nobody needs help. Right. You know, and that's wrong. So... um so there, we have this spectrum um, idea of autism now, but it, all, it wasn't always that way. Um, in no. the early 1940s, this is where the history really picks up. Um, two yeah. Austrian researchers, Austria was like the, the motherland of psychology and psychi psychiatry. They were working independently from each other. They both published papers um, describing autism. One was Hans Asperger and the other was Leo Kanner. Um, or I think, is that how you pronounce his last name, Kanner? It's Connor, Connor. actually. Okay. Um, in fact, what's kind of amusing is that even though he was Jewish and from Eastern Europe for a while, when he worked in a psychiatric hospital, the patients would call him Father O'Connor. Uh, <laughs> O'Connor. Leo O'Connor. <laughs> so yeah. let's talk about uh, Connor first, because in his yep. conception of autism, because that really set the tone for autism research in the 20th century. Yeah, it sure did. So, so what yeah. was Connor's background, and how did that background influence his description of autism? So here's the deal. Leo Connor, uh, you know, sort of went down in history, uh, at least until my book was published, as the, as the discoverer of autism. Like, you know, that's what it said in Wikipedia. That's what it said in thousands of textbooks. Uh, and that's because in 1943, Leo Connor published a paper where he described 11 uh, of his young patients who uh, had, you know, trouble with reciprocal social interactions, didn't even seem to want to know their own parents, would, uh, you know, could play on the floor with a, a pot lid for hours, uh, didn't seem to want to be interrupted, didn't even, even seem to care about their parents. Leo Connor's descriptions of autism were very, very vivid. And one of the reasons why they were so vivid was because when he was a young man growing up in Eastern Europe, he was a poet. And so he was an, he was an excellent writer, um, and he eventually uh, came to the U.S. Um, and he, you know, worked in psychiatric hospitals and ended up uh, getting a job at Johns Hopkins. Um, and so there, uh, he published his paper on autism. Here's the problem, though: uh, even though he sort of took credit for discovering autism, what I found out 
was that he had a connection to a guy who had been virtually forgotten, uh, except for his last name, Hans Asperger. Hans Asperger uh, was working in Vienna in the 1930s in a clinic that was a very unusually progressive place. For instance, um, they, the patients would do art together. They would put on plays together. The, the clinic was not what we normally think of as like a place where a kid gets dropped off for a couple of hours for a round of diagnostic tests. It was a place where the kids would live. And these kids were sort of at the end of their rope in a way. Like they were often put there after being expelled from many schools. Their parents considered them very, very difficult. Some of them would end up there uh, uh, sort of at, at the behest of the juvenile courts. So the kids would stay there for a month or more. And while they were there, they not only were observed continuously while they you know, took tests, while they slept, while they played with each other or not, um, but they also had like phys ed classes set to music in the morning. Uh, Asperger would read poetry to the kids. So it was a very humane environment. And the idea was that um, the kids would sort of relearn how to become functioning uh, members of society uh, by creating sort of a model, humane, compassionate society in the clinic. And um, what Asperger knew was that kids with even pretty profound autism could succeed in life if they were given the right kinds of support. And I'll give you an example. <clears throat> One of Asperger's patients was a young kid who, when he was uh, like about two years old, started to draw triangles and circles in the sand and eventually became obsessed with astronomy. And instead of his mother treating that as just this kind of annoying obsession, she supported his interest in, uh, uh, sorry, in geometry, actually. She supported his interest in geometry. So um, he then went on to middle school where his teachers thought that he was too intellectually disabled to get advanced tutoring in math. He badgered them into it. They did it. And he eventually went on to become an assistant professor of astronomy at a university by detecting an error in one of Isaac Newton's proofs in his first year at university. So he was a very gifted guy, but he was also very autistic. Like, if people, would, uh, if people he knew would walk past him on the street, he wouldn't recognize them because uh, often autistic people have trouble recognizing faces, something called prosopagnosia. So uh, Asperger knew that autistic people were capable of great success, but only if they got tons of support from parents, from teachers, from the local community. Um, Asperger also believed that autism was very common, that it was a very old thing, that uh, autistic traits were widespread. He said, once you learn to recognize the distinctive traits of autism, you see them everywhere. So what happened to this guy? Why did his very uh, broad model of autism, which indeed you know, anticipates what we now call the autism spectrum, why did that become lost knowledge for most of the 20th century? Well, it's because in 1938, the Nazis marched in from uh, Germany over the mountains to annex Austria for the fatherland, and they immediately passed uh, eugenics laws to purge forms of hereditary disability from uh, the human gene pool 
in accordance with Nazi eugenics uh, theory. And so the kids in Asperger's Clinic became a target of a secret extermination program that the Nazis were running that became the practice run for the Holocaust. So the Nazis actually developed methods of mass killing and disposal of bodies by practicing on disabled children. So this was a horrible thing. And at the same time, uh, of course, they were targeting the Jews. And what happened was two of Asperger's closest colleagues were George Frankel and Ani Weiss. Uh, they were both uh, wonderfully uh, progressive uh, people working in Asperger's Clinic. They had to leave the country or die in the Holocaust. And um, what happened was this guy, Leo Connor, being Eastern European himself, now safely installed at Johns Hopkins, uh, Connor and his wife decided to rescue Jewish clinicians from the Holocaust. And two of the people that he rescued were George Frankel and Annie Weiss. So um, Asperger's work sort of wound down uh, at the height of World War II. He was actually um, sent away from the clinic to become an ambulance driver in Croatia. Uh, the clinic was bombed by us because the University of Vienna had been turned into a Nazi propaganda machine instead of the great, uh, you know, highly Jewish university that it had been in the early 30s. Um, and so Connor saved the lives of Frankel and Weiss, and they were both uh, in his social circle, and Frankel was working with him directly, when Connor, quote-unquote, discovered autism. So, you know, by the time that Connor was working for, uh, by the time that Franco was working for Connor, he had already seen dozens uh, of autistic uh, people um, at all levels of ability, from uh, people who could not survive outside of institutions to, uh, you know, that kid who became an astronomy professor. So Frankel knew very well that, uh, what autism looked like, and in 1938, Connor's first autistic patient, a guy named Donald Triplett, showed up at Johns Hopkins. Connor didn't know what to make of him. In his notes, he wrote schizophrenia, which is exactly what you know a clinician would have thought who didn't know about autism. Um, and uh, but it was Connor's. Uh, the problem was that Connor developed a model of autism. Uh, after Frankel and Weiss left, because uh, Connor was unfortunately unable to get a job for uh, Frankel and Weiss at Johns Hopkins. So they sort of disappear over the horizon. And then Connor wrote this famous paper in 1943 that described autism. But Connor, in a, you know, in a truly unfortunate turn of events, um, proposed that autism was very, very rare. And when I was researching his past... I noticed that he had done that in his very first paper as well, which was about uh, syphilis among Native Americans. And he insisted that syphilis was very, very rare among Native Americans. Well, it turns out not so. It turns out that Native Americans did not get very good health care, and they distrusted white doctors. So, uh, in fact, Connor sort of hyped his discovery of this uh, Native American with syphilis, and in, in this, ex using exactly the same language that he would later hype autism as this exceptionally rare condition. 
So yeah, so Connor, uh, he said it was also it was very rare. Where Asperger says it was actually very common. And the other difference too, I, I noted too in, in your book was that Connor had a very like very narrow, narrow defined traits that someone had to show in order to him to be able to say you're autistic. Whereas Asperger had the more broader range spectrum. Yes, that's exactly true. And, you know, there are, it's not like Leo Connor, you know, was a terribly evil man or anything. He was probably a very good man. But, um, this was the, this was the distinction between the mission of Asperger and Connor that proved to be so, uh, faithful. Um, Connor was trying to establish child psychiatry as a viable field in America. He was one of the first child psychiatrists in America. So for him to discover a condition that was, as he called it, a form of psychosis, which it isn't, but, uh, you know, for him to discover a form of psychosis that was endemic to childhood, that would be sort of a big scoop for child psychiatry in America. So he tried to draw the diagnosis very, uh, you know, sort of selectively and specifically, and he ended up, in fact, focusing on um, sort of super ambitious academic families. Uh, well, you know, who was in Connor's social network? Super ambitious academic families. Like several of the uh, parents in uh, Connor's first paper were, you know, psychologists or psychiatrists themselves. So, you know, it turns out that what was rare was having access to Leo Connor's office at Johns Hopkins. And he once said, in the 50s, I believe, they had only seen 150 true cases of autism in his lifetime. And that was because, as he bragged to another clinician, he turned nine out of ten kids referred to him worldwide for a diagnosis of autism by other clinicians away without giving them an autism diagnosis. So he would rule out kids who had seizures. Now we know that seizures are very common in autism. He had this uh, mistaken belief that autistic kids are exceptionally beautiful. Well, some of them are, but some of them look more like me. Um, you know, uh, he would not give an autism diagnosis to a kid who had profound intellectual disability. Now we know that intellectual disability and autism can overlap a lot. He, he tended to only write about white people. Now we know that, uh, in fact, you know, people of color also get autism at equal rates. So... Connor had a way of like ruling out so many people that it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy that autism was rare. And the problem was that for whatever reason he had, Connor pretty much buried autism uh, research by Asperger in history. He never mentioned Asperger's name uh, until I did find the one place where he mentioned it was in the 1970s. So, uh, you know, pretty much decades of damage had been done. And what he said was, oh, yes, Asperger, what that person discovered was, at best, a 42nd cousin of my syndrome and has already received serious, intention, uh, serious attention from investigators. That's wrong. In fact, ought, uh, Asperger's paper had not even been uh, translated into English by that point. So Asperger was virtually unknown. Now, I ask myself, and it's certainly the first thing I would ask Leo Connor if he were to appear to me in a dream or something, I would say, why did you not mention Asperger's work? You know, it was like the one other paper that was published virtually at the same time as yours. 
Um, you know, people say like, well, it was published in German. That was Connor's native language. You know, people say, well, it was published in this obscure German medical journal, one that Leo Connor cited all the time in his papers, you know. So the notion that, like, Connor somehow overlooked Asperger's paper is ridiculous. What I think happened probably is that, let's not forget that, at least, you know, certainly after 1938 and even before that, Asperger was working for Nazis. The Nazis took over the University of Vienna. So I suspect that uh, Connor probably associated Asperger with Nazis, even though he refused to join the party, was a member of a Christian youth group that opposed the Nazis and was eventually banned. But I think, you know, Connor basically said, forget that guy. You know, he was working for Nazis. I'm going to be the sole discoverer of autism. But the problem was his model was so narrow that uh, people didn't even research autism because they thought it was not a promising career uh, because it was so ra- such a rare syndrome. And, you know, Connor already has it covered. In fact, people called it Connor's syndrome. Um, so we see the problem that happened between Connor's burial of Asperger and Frankel and everybody else who was associated with Asperger in history, the burial of, you know, really what was a, an early recognition of the autism spectrum, as meanwhile, Connor goes for decades insisting that it's rare. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. 
Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Well, so how did that idea of autism being rare, um, how did that influence how we as a society think about and approach autism today? Well, uh, it, it still has a huge effect. In fact, if you think about what I already mentioned is the first question that almost everybody asked me about my book. What, you know, why did you write it? Do you have a kid on the spectrum? It's like, I'm a science writer. You know, it's like, what, you know, it's as if they're saying no one would write about autism unless they were forced to by circumstances in a sense. Uh, and I think that's an unconscious echo of the belief that autism is rare. If autism is common as it indeed is, and we now recognize that, um, then why wouldn't a science writer write about autism? But, you know, so I think it tends to segregate people who are interested in autism into this sort of ghetto, you know, where only people who are personally affected by autism would be interested in it. That's not true. Everybody should be interested in it. It's a very common condition. Um, we have tended to underinvest in research designed to improve the lives and uh, happiness and security of autistic people and their families instead, uh, mainly because of the terrible and mistaken idea that vaccines cause autism. We've invested millions and millions of dollars in searching for the cause of autism. Um, you know, is that interesting science? Yes. Uh, but we're doing that at the same time that we're basically leaving uh, autistic people and their families to twist in the wind without things like programs to help autistic high school students transition into the workplace. They're basically non-existent. 
people ask me, you know, where can I find a program for my kid? He's very bright. He's very motivated, but, you know, I don't know where he could learn the skills that would enable him to get a good job. And thus, as a result, many, many autistic people who would love to be working and who are very capable of brilliant work are unemployed and living on, you know, disability and, and really poor. I mean, like, you know, they struggle to buy groceries every day. And this is a terrible uh, situation, and it's specifically because autism was uh, mistakenly believed to be so rare for decades. Connor also you know, put out ideas for like what caused autism, and like you know put out and researchers that followed in Connor's path, kind of tried to come up with cures for for autism. I remember you mentioned that the frigid mother. You know, cause of autism. Yeah, that was Connor's idea. Yeah. And I think yeah, it's funny because yeah, I collect, I collect vintage magazines and that's, that's a, that was a common article in the 1950s was the refrigerator mom. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in fact, Connor and his disciple, Leon Eisenberg did not only single out mothers. It's somewhat of a kind of a sexist dynamic that made it about only mothers. Uh, Eisenberg in particular was equally down on the fathers of autistic kids, but uh, yeah, it was, you know, basically it was a really interesting situation. When Connor initially came out with his paper, he speculated that, it was pro- that autism was probably inborn, thus genetic. But if you think about it, that would tend to limit um, the role of the child psychiatrist, because what can a child psychiatrist do about a condition that's genetic? Well, virtually nothing. But if, but if it's, you know, psychological instead of genetic or genetic and psychological, then the child psychiatrist can sweep in and say, actually, we know what to do with your child. And what was often done with um, autistic children for decades, for most of the 20th century, was that they were put in institutions because of this mistaken idea initially developed by Connor and then sort of popularized, turned into an almost a pop culture craze by this guy named Bruno Bettelheim, who wrote a bestseller called uh, The Empty Fortress that said that refrigerator mothers, in fact, he compared the mothers of autistic kids to concentration camp commandants. And because he was a concentration camp survivor himself, nobody challenged him. Like, who would say that, you know, a Holocaust survivor was lying? But he was lying. His entire career was was a, a hoax, more or less. He invented degrees that he didn't have. Um, he got tons of money from the Rockefeller Foundation for allegedly curing autistic kids. Uh, he didn't. Um, so, you know, Bettelheim was totally bogus, but he blew Connor's uh, notion of the refrigerator mother up into this enormous uh, thing. And what was terrible about that was that... <clears throat> You know, there are significant challenges associated with raising an autistic kid. You know, it's hard enough. What if you are also being blamed not just by your, you know, therapist uh, and your pediatrician, but by your neighbors for making your kid autistic? And that's what happened to the parents of autistic kids uh, for, for decades, you know, really through the, uh, through the 60s, actually. And in fact... I spoke with uh, the parent of one of the first kids to get the diagnosis, uh, this woman, Gloria Rimland, uh, whose husband, Bernard, ended up helping to launch the autism parents movement. 
uh, and to demolish the notion of refrigerator mothers. But she told me that she and Bernard, um, uh, you know, had basically been trapped at home for years trying to raise their son, who was very self-injurious. They couldn't find a babysitter. Um, so, you know, one night they go out for dinner with another couple for the first time in years. And, you know, they're having a glass of wine, they're having a good time. And suddenly the wife of the other couple turns to Gloria and says, you know, you just don't seem like that kind of person. And Gloria says, what kind of person? And the woman says, who would do that to your child? So you can imagine the, you know, the burden of grief and guilt and shame uh, that was uh, piled on to the parents of autistic kids. And it also kept them from talking to each other because to admit that you had an autistic kid was tantamount to admitting that you were mentally ill, you know, that you didn't love your child, that you didn't show your child affection. So much so that they withdrew, you know, intentionally into, you know, what used to be called the autistic shell, you know. And so... um it was a terrible thing to do to parents. It interfered with science. It was a terrible thing to do to autistic people because in the institutions they weren't, you know, these, they weren't going to luxurious autism wards. They were going to psych wards, you know, lockdown wards with adult psychotics where they were subjected to every wacky treatment from lobotomy to uh, there was a woman that... Um, Bellevue, she was the head of psychiatry at Bellevue, and so she had no oversight. You know, it's not like she even had to submit her experiments to an ethics board. It didn't happen. Um, she gave a bunch of uh, autistic kids LSD every day for up to nine months in some cases until she discovered that it was making them more anxious. Well, you know, if I took LSD every day for nine months, I'd be, out, you know, out of my <laughs> mind, basically. So, uh, anyway, uh, it was really a blot on the history of uh, psychiatry and psychology that uh, autistic people were not only so misunderstood, that their families were misunderstood and demonized, and that autistic people were subjected to these horrible experimental treatments. And I also think the idea that you can cure it, right? I'm sure like these parents would just like, they'd spend tons of money, do anything, go to enormous lengths to like, I want to cure my child of this. And it was probably just frustrating because they're th they thinking I'm to blame for this. So I got to do whatever I can to fix it. And I'm sure it was just like kicking against the pricks and I just made them, that just devastated them even more. Right. Well, you know, the cure thing really, uh, you know, in a sense took off I would say it, more in the 1990s, and that was when, um, unfortunately, Bernard Rimlin actually got, got very into the uh, idea that uh, autistic kids could be cured with dietary interventions or experimental drugs like secretin. And so he, uh, Rimlin was so turned off to mainstream uh, medicine, really, by the refrigerator mother stuff that he sort of became rogue and, you know, went off on his own to do his own autism research. And, uh, you know, I think he had very, very good intentions, like a kind of a theme running through my book is people with good intentions who try to do good things and then, you know, end up making bad decisions that then cast a shadow over autistic people and their families. And so Rimland popularized the notion that kids could be quote unquote recovered from autism 
through dietary interventions. It is true that, you know, if, a, if an autistic kid is having some kind of digestive upset, that if you change their diet, you know, maybe they're uh, gluten sensitive or have celiac disease. If you remove gluten from the diet of a kid who has celiac disease, yes, they will, you know, very definitely uh, improve their uh, digestive symptoms and then their behavior will improve. But the problem is that this was all confused with curing autism, which it isn't. Uh, some kids do lose their diagnoses over time. In that sense, they grow out of the diagnosis. Um, but there was actually just an, a major article the other day that many of those kids who lose the autism diagnosis are then diagnosed with ADHD or chronic anxiety or chronic depression. So what's clear is that people who are autistic are born with different wiring. And, you know, if they meet the diagnostic criteria for autism when they're young, they'll get diagnosed with autism. They may lose that diagnosis eventually, but they still need help and support their whole lives. So Asperger was ignored for most of the 20th century. Um, yeah. Connor's idea of autism was sort of ascendant. How did that transition go from autism being rare and having these very specific traits you had to meet in order to be um, diagnosed as being autistic? How did that go from there to the spectrum that we know today? Well, uh, the, uh, you know, sort of the avatar of this change was a wonderful cognitive psychiatrist in London named Lorna Wing. And unfortunately, Lorna is no longer with us. I had the uh, really great honor of doing one of the last uh, in-depth interviews with her at her office uh, before she died. Um, but what happened was Lorna herself was the mother of a profoundly disabled autistic girl named Susie. And so Lorna didn't have any problems with uh, Susie uh, meeting the criteria for you know what was then called Connor's syndrome. She was a classic Connor kid in a way. Um, but at some point she was asked by a public health official because, you know, Britain has nationalized health care, which tends to get called socialist here in America. Um, but, uh, so this public health official asked her to estimate how many autistic kids were in a London suburb called Camberwell so that they could allocate the appropriate amount of resources for them. And so instead of waiting for autistic kids to come to her office, like Leo Connor uh, had done, she and a colleague named Judith Gould went out into the streets of Camberwell and looked everywhere. They looked in uh, school records, they looked in hospital records, they looked in uh, clinic records, trying to find uh, kids with autism everywhere they could. And what they found was that there were many, many more autistic kids than Leo Connor's model would have predicted, but not all of them would have met Connor's very strict and narrow criteria. For instance, Connor wrote about kids who didn't even seem to want to know their own parents, whereas Lorna and Judith would see like a kid who clearly loved their mom, helped her do the dishes, and then would retire into their rooms to listen to their favorite record 25 times over. So it was as if these kids had bits and pieces of Connor syndrome, but perhaps not to uh, not enough to meet the full criteria. But boy, were there ever a lot of them, you know, like more than Connor's model would have predicted. So Lorna did not know what to make of this data, 
like she originally thought, maybe Connor is like completely wrong. You know, his conception of autism is wrong. But then she came across a reference to this paper by this guy who no one had heard of named Hans Asperger. And it was, you know, in German. Luckily, her husband, John, who was a schizophrenia researcher, spoke German. So he translated it for her. And when she read Asperger's paper, and, you know, this was now, you know, more than 30 years after it was written and forgotten, um, she said, this is it. This is exactly what we're seeing in Camberwell. You know, so then Lorna sort of went behind the scenes with the editors of the so-called Bibles of Psychiatry, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders and the International Classification of Diseases, and said, you know, like, hey, the criteria for autism are too narrow and restrictive. Um, it, it's a spectrum. It's not just this monolithic syndrome where all the people are basically the same. In fact, you know, people with autism are really different from one another. And so her changes to the DSM and the International Classification of Diseases went, uh, went to print, you know, in the late 80s and early 1990s. And almost immediately, the number of diagnoses started to soar just as Lorna not only intended, but indeed hoped would happen because she knew how hard it was to uh, either be autistic and, you know, have the wrong diagnosis or to raise an autistic kid without help, without special education. So it was exactly what she wanted to happen. But then this, you know, bogus guy named Andrew Wakefield came along and blamed the rise in diagnoses on vaccines. Yeah, and that's where that came from. And they, they found out, they later proved that his studies were bogus somehow, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, they've, they haven't been replicated. And, you know, the, the problem is, all right, here's the thing. When I started researching neurotribes, I thought, well, maybe Andrew Wakefield is a true believer. You know, he was on to something. He ran a study. The study was no good. There were a lot of ethical problems with it. Like, you know, he, in his press conferences, he would really sound the alarm about vaccines. Vaccine uptake rates started falling over the all over the world. Uh, diseases like measles and mumps started coming back strong after being uh, kept down for years by, by vaccination programs. Um, I thought, you know, maybe he thought he was on to something and, you know, he had good intentions. No. Um, the more research I did, the more I realized that he was just a liar who lies about autism history. He insists that autism never existed before Leo Connor wrote about it. Well, one of the people who would have disagreed with him was Leo Connor. Uh, Leo Connor didn't think he was discovering something new under the sun. He just thought it had never been adequately described. Um, in the clinical literature. And in fact, one of the very first, uh, the, one of the founding fathers of British psychiatry, this guy, Jay Langdon Down, who named Down Syndrome, wrote about kids who would lose speech uh, suddenly, uh, you know, uh, and dramatically and disturbingly in their early childhood. So Andrew Wakefield said, you know, losing speech is caused by vaccines. You know, that's a new form of autism that has never been seen before called regressive autism. And, of course, parents, uh, you know, would believe such a thing because uh, it's actually not that uncommon for a kid to seem to be developing normally for a couple of years and then suddenly they seem to lose skills. Well, Jay Langdon Down had, had uh, noticed that, you know, uh, more than 100 years before, 
But Andrew Wakefield insisted that regressive autism didn't exist before the MMR. It's, you know, he's, he's a liar. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of parents still believe him because he told a very simple, very emotionally resonant story about what caused the dramatic increase in autism. And no one else had ever provided parents with, uh, you know, a true version of history. And so that's why I wrote my book to try to uh, show what actually happened. So this brings us to this idea of neurodiversity. Um, and I mean, autism exists. So it, it's, it's probably inborn. You show, you show that your, your article, the geek syndrome that parents who are computer program, computer programmers, engineers often have children with autism, not all of them, but you know, many do. Um, so do geneticists, do they understand like why autism exists? Cause I, I, I think this goes to your neurodiversity idea. Cause I, I remember reading a book about depression and like, they think that, well, the reason why depression exists, it's, there is sort of an adaptive quality to it. It, um, provides these, you know, allows you to, be, to have depressive realism. Um, and there's sort of some benefits to it as well, or, or otherwise it wouldn't exist. So is there any theories like that about autism as well? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. It's like, we know in a rainforest that there are many different kinds of trees, right? And that actually the diversity in a, a biological community like a rainforest, in fact, adds to the resilience of that community in the, in the face of changing climate, you know, for instance. Um, why do we think that there's only one type of quote-unquote normal human brain? You know, it's, it's, if you think about it, just in very basic terms, it's kind of a naive idea you know, but it came from sort of the ascendance of uh, psychiatry in the 20th century where, you know, there's this normal kind of brain and this guy, you know, a psychiatrist is going to help you get there if you're not quite there. Or, well-adjusted. Or What's be, that? You want to be well-adjusted. That's what they were trying right, to do. Right, you want to be well-adjusted. And, you know, eventually they came along with, uh, you know, psychopharmaceuticals. If, you know, if you have a, a serotonin uptake problem in your brain, which, by the way, has never been proven scientifically, you'll take antidepressants. You know, the truth is antidepressants do, you know, work for a lot of people, but we still don't know why, you know. Right, right. So the notion that, you know, if, you're, if you have depression or if you have anxiety, there's something wrong with your brain because there's really only one kind of well-adjusted human brain. It's a very naive idea, you know, but uh, autism is another sort of avenue towards that understanding. And the word neurodiversity came from a sociology student named Judy Singer in Australia, who was part of one of the very first online communities for autistic adults uh, in, the, um, in the 1990s. And, uh, you know, the internet came along right when the diagnoses started going up. And one of the things that Lorna did by changing the criteria was that she made the diagnosis available to adults for the first time. And so I went back and looked at uh, some of the very first online conversations had by autistic people. Uh, and one of the questions that kept coming up is, can Connor's syndrome, which was considered you know, a form of childhood psychosis, can it persist into adulthood? Because I was diagnosed with Connor syndrome when I was young, and now I'm an adult, and I still think I'm kind of weird, you know, somehow. And so pe the people who were in these early online communities literally had to figure out that they were autistic adults because the mainstream, uh, uh, you know, textbooks didn't support that idea. So anyway, so uh, 
Judy was learning about something called the social model of disability. There are a couple of different ways of looking at disability. One is that you're disabled. There's something wrong with you. It should be fixed. You know, the other way to look at disability is to say, well, maybe if you say you're really disabled, maybe there are things that society could do to help you, you know, lead a satisfying life. So it's like if you're in a wheelchair and there are no wheelchair ramps or no accessible classrooms or, you know, there's just stairs, you're really disabled, you know. But if you live in a town with, you know, good disability access and, and uh, you know, accessible movie theaters and accessible public transit, you can get around. And so Judy started to think about um, autism in a disability context and particularly in the context of the social model of disability. And autism had been defined as just sort of a checklist of deficits and impairments for decades. You can't do this. You can't do that. You're not good at this. You're not good at that. Well, you know, it turns out that a lot of autistic people are good at something. You know, they're not all geniuses. You know, they can't all, uh, you know, count toothpicks fall into the floor like Rain Man. They're not all savants. But, you know, a lot of autistic people are good at something, particularly in their area of special interest. Why do we, you know, Judy started asking herself, why do we only talk about ourselves in terms of deficits and impairments? So she came up with this word neurodiversity based on the word biodiversity, which we all know is a good thing, so that autistic people and people with other conditions like ADHD and dyslexia uh, could talk about themselves without sort of automatically putting themselves down in a medical way. And she hoped that the word neurodiversity would spread through the online community in the same way that slogans like black is beautiful or gay is good had spread through other marginalized and stigmatized communities in the 60s. She hoped that the word neurodiversity would do the same thing for uh, people with autism and these other forms of cognitive disability, and it worked. It went viral. So with that in mind, you know, I'm sure there's people who are listening to this, their parents, maybe they just found out a, their child um, has autism or is on the autism spectrum. And for many parents, uh, you know, finding out that out can be devastating um, because, you know, it doesn't fit the plan, right, that they, they have for their kids. Yep. So, I mean, any advice for parents out there who are listening, you know, who just found out their child's on the spectrum, like what's the mindset they should approach with what you just said, this history of autism you just given us, like what is the best mindset to go about in raising a child uh, on the spectrum? Sure. That's a very important question. Um, the first thing I would say is, you know, many of the messages that uh, parents get when their kid is diagnosed, uh, even sometimes from their friends, you know, they're very dire. Like, you know, they tend to go like, your kid will never get married. Your kid will never be able to go to college. You know, it's as if people are trying to prevent them from having unreasonable hopes. The truth of the matter is, you have no idea what your kid might be capable of when they grow up. And uh, the really the arc of autistic people's lives, particularly in the last 20 years or so, uh, has shown that autistic people are capable of astonishing spurts of development, even in middle age. So you have no idea what your kid will be capable of. And I'll give you an example from today's news. Um, there was a kid... Uh, named, I think, Jody. Unfortunately, I don't have his name on the tip of my tongue. But he was basically nonverbal uh, when he was a kid. He was, he was growing up in England. Um, you know, many bad predictions were made about him. 
but he had a curious interest in birds. He loved to watch birds through the window, and it turns out that one of the reasons why he loved to watch birds was because they could quickly fly away and escape, you know, unpleasant surroundings, which is what what he wished he could do. Well, his kid, you know, instead of like saying, "Well, you." You know, you stop staring out the window at birds all the time. They got him a bird, you know, and the kid, the kid named the bird. And, you know, it was like one of the first things that he said. And um, the kid got really into birds. And by studying uh, the science of birds, he ended up becoming interested in science in general. Anyway, that kid is about to go to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. And he was, you know, he was basically nonverbal when he was young and by supporting the kid's special interest, like <clears throat> another of the bad theories that Leo Connor had was that autistic special interests were inherently pathological. Like he, one of Connor's patients was a kid who could identify 18 symphonies after hearing only a few bars before he turned two. like he would hear a few bars and say Beethoven, you know, and uh, Connor thought it was very bad because kids couldn't possibly be interested in Beethoven. They're obviously just trying to earn love from their unloving parents. That's wrong. You know, the kid was really into Beethoven and, and other classical composers. So uh, autistic special interests, as they're often called, are actually the basis for a future pathway into a successful life. And that's something that Asperger knew, like that kid with, you know, drawing the geometric figures in the sand who went on to become an assistant professor of astronomy. So autistic minds learn, but in their own way. Like for many decades, it was assumed that autistic kids were incapable of learning. Well, that's because they were in institutions where there was no education going on. You know, so what I would say to parents is, you know, obviously not every autistic kid is going to turn out to be some kind of a genius, and uh, the kid will need definitely need, you know, many, many different forms of support that will change over time. And, you know, if you're a parent, you need to become a very powerful advocate uh, with your kid's school boards and with practically everything uh, in order to ensure that your kid leads a successful life. But <clears throat> I would also send parents of a newly diagnosed kid to see a relatively recent film called Life Animated, which is a story of how a, uh, it's a real life story of how a uh, journalist named Ron Suskind had a kid who lost speech. Uh, suddenly they thought, you know, his life was basically over, more or less. They thought he'd have to live in an institution. And they used the kid's interest in Disney movies to establish communication with him again. And that kid is now living on his own, in his own apartment, and he's a very charming young man. So what I would say to parents is don't despair. Um, try to find good sources of information. Uh, you know, my book can give you the history, but for uh, a parent, I would suggest another book called Barry Presents Uniquely Human. Um, there's also a book called The Real Experts, which is a, an anthology of writing by autistic adults, uh, reflecting on what experiences help them get through life. It's really important that, that autistic kids get role models of autism in adulthood. Um, and, you know, they'll see that it's not a hopeless situation, which is the message that, unfortunately, many parents get when their kid is first diagnosed. Don't lose hope. Right. And I love that. And what about for those of us who might not have autistic family members, but work or interact with individuals 
who are autistic. I mean, you're a, a non-autistic person who's, I'm sure, talked to thousands of autistic people. I mean, I think a lot of people want to befriend and help these people feel comfortable, but they're not sure about what's the best approach. I mean, any advice there? Yeah, let them lead, you know, in a sense. It's like, uh, don't, you know, I remember I had a very important lesson, uh, actually, because an autistic guy um, who was really hilarious online um, sort of got in touch with me, wanted to have coffee. I went to meet him for coffee. The whole time he was sitting there, I thought he was having the worst time. He was like frowning at me. He seemed very tense. I thought, oh, God, this is terrible. You know, like, this isn't working at all. I'm not coming off as charming, you know. And uh, then, you know, I, I, I thought it was, you know, not a good interaction. Then I got home, and he was like, that was great. You know, when can we do this again? So it's like it turns out that non-autistic people have as much trouble parsing the body language and facial expressions and social signals of autistic people as much as they have trouble parsing ours. So don't assume that an autistic person will respond in uh, you know non-autistic or neurotypical ways to your you know your little jokes or whatever. They may not get them. Uh, they may have a very highly developed sense of humor and sarcasm, but you know they may miss a, a you know an ironic comment that you make or whatever. Just sort of let the autistic person establish what level of communication they're comfortable with, what methods of communication they're comfortable with. Um, if an autistic person looks away from you, it doesn't mean that they're bored or not listening or hostile. It could mean that they're uh, having trouble processing your facial expressions at the same time that they're listening to your words. So, you know, let them look away. They may be they may be even more interested, you know, than you can possibly imagine in what you're saying. But I would say, you know, sort of let the autistic person lead rather than enforcing some kind of, um, uh, you know, standard of normal behavior, which is based on non-autistic behavior. And there are organizations you can go, you know, if you're curious, uh, particularly for parents, there are organizations you can get in touch with, like there's a group called AANE, the Autism and Asperger's Association of New England. They have meetings for both autistic people and parents. You can meet autistic people, get to know them, uh, and thus get to know not, not only your own child better, but what your child's potential is. Well, awesome. Steve, we covered a lot. We did. This was great. Thank you. Well, Steve Silverman, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I'm, I'm, it's a thrill for me to be here. My guest today was Steve Silberman. He's the author of the book, Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash neurotribes, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or audio production needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. We appreciate your support. Reviews on iTunes and Stitcher helps out a lot. And as always, until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.
Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.